This is Democracy, a podcast that explores the interracial, intergenerational, and intersectional unheard voices living in the world's most influential democracy. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Uh, Today we are going to talk about a a difficult and important issue, and an issue that's crucial to the future of our democracy, uh, the exclusion of uh, Hispanic uh, citizens and residents from many uh, American universities and other institutions in our society, why this exclusion seems to be uh, endemic to so many of our institutions, and uh, how history can help us recognize it and do something about it. Uh, We're joined by my very distinguished colleague, Professor Jorge Canizades Esguera. Um, he is the Alice Drysdale Sheffield Professor of History at the University of Texas. Uh, he's one of the leading world authorities on uh, the history of uh, encounters between um, citizens of and uh, residents of the Americas and those who come from outside the Americas. He's written uh, many, many articles and books, uh, three books in particular, uh, How to Write the History of the New World, uh, The Puritan Conquistadors, it's wonderful to call the Puritans conquistadors. Very, very subversive of you, Jorge. And Nature, Empire, and Nation, which I believe grew out of his dissertation uh, at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where I used to teach. So we have that connection among many things. Uh, I just wanted to read you, before uh, we move on, a short excerpt from um, uh, Jorge's uh, webpage, which I think really captures what he does and the excitement uh, around his work. He writes, the core of my intellectual project has been to demonstrate the deep formative role of Latin America to the colonial history of the United States and to the history of Western modernity as a whole. Not just slavery, globalization, and capitalism, where Jorge and others have written about this, but also even deeper issues, science, abolitionism, and democracy are subject here today. So we're very fortunate uh, to have Jorge. Welcome. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you. It's delightful to have you here. Before we turn to our discussion, of course, we have our scene-setting poem from Mr. Zachary Suri. Uh, What's the title of your poem today, Zachary? Exclusion is a funny word. Well, let's hear it. Exclusion is a funny word. It rattles through my tongue, sweeping like a tidal wave. It is a feeling we have all known, swinging sweetly on tree branches from a young age like scout finch, except in an urban jungle. We have known it cross through our minds like those long needles that pin down giant butterflies in stuffy museums. When it is spoken in quiet, rushed voices by our parents on the other side of the bathroom door. And everyone was once just a voyeur on America's coattails, just an observer of democracy from the top of the stairs. And we were children then, driving past the east side on the towering concrete interstate, staring up at the little bits of light showing through the gaps in the highway above. Exclusion is the distance between a child holding an empty ice cream cone and the melting pool of ice cream on the ground measured in lumens. The unbalanced coexistence between walls and sunshine, like the flowers that bloom through the cracks in the concrete. And exclusion is the lifeblood of hatred, the end-all be-all of corruption, sagging through the window like raindrops in heavy wind. And there is yet beauty in sorrowful songs that sear into my brain from the records of my youthful days spent sifting through record stores and doing homework with Otis Redding. There was a wonderful bitterness in the way the light streams through the live oaks on the rundown streets on weekday evenings that makes me cry. And there is tenderness in the eyes of the homeless man on the highway, but there is suffering in his feet. That's a very evocative poem, Zachary. Uh, what is your poem about? 
Well, my poem is really about uh, how horrible exclusion is and how much suffering it creates and how much talent it puts down, but at the same time, how in many ways those who suffer the most have produced some of the greatest benefits for our society and some of the greatest beauty. That's that's a really important insight. Uh, Jorge, do you agree with that? Does that resonate with you? Well, first of all, I think you are a great poet. <laughs> Thank you. I am a poet myself, and I am impressed. Um, we need to have your poetry on next yeah, time. <laughs> perhaps, yeah. Yeah, I've been doing poetry for 40-some years. Wow. Uh, um, never published anything, but uh, I like poetry. I, I enjoy it. I write often. Um, I think it's a... It's, it's a it's a very difficult craft. Yes. <laughs> uh, it's not easy. Um, but so I congratulate you. Thank you. Yeah, it's amazing what you did. I mean, you do it every week. Thank you. Yeah. Wow. Uh, well, what I can say, uh, I, I, I think you're right. Uh, in certain respects, it's, it's, I think it's complicated, and we'll be talking about yes. it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so, so why, why in a society that claims to be open and democratic, why, why have uh, going back to the beginning in a sense where you're the foremost expert, Jorge, why have Hispanic peoples been excluded in our society? That is a, that is a, a good question. I think it has to do with with the exclusion of a great many people. It's not just Hispanics. I mean, African Americans, Asians, at different stages. I think the the problem with Hispanics is that. The issue of exclusion is not being addressed and is not being identified, and worse, is not being solved. The, 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 the Hispanics, for some reason, remain invisible. African Americans do not. They have organized. Um, they demand justice and integration, and they fight very, very hard against marginalization, mm -hmm. and they have powerful political voices. Mm -hmm. I don't think Hispanics do. Mm. Um, I'm not entirely clear why. I, it might be uh, the great diversity of peoples within Hispanic communities. Um, uh, Cubans do not get along with Puerto Ricans. Puerto Ricans <laughs> don't get along with, uh, I don't know, Mexicans. Mexicans don't get along with whoever is it they have to get along. And at the end, there is no unity. Um, and there is no common common goals, mm -hmm. I would say, that you could say that, for instance, in the elections in Florida. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, it, re it reminds to me a puzzle, really an existential puzzle that people in Florida would, uh, Latinos would have elected uh, Trump, would have right. voted for Trump. Right. Trump. Right. Or Scott recently said, wow, what? Right. But yet they do. Right. Uh, so how could that be possible? That You don't see that in the case of African-Americans. There's far mm -hmm. more mm -hmm. uh, consciousness and unity and... Uh, and predictability and how they predictability yes. too. Yes. Uh, so I'm not... I mean, I am here partly because I'm puzzled by this. Is this a, is this a long-standing issue? Do you see this... I mean, because again, your work goes back to the 16th century, right? Do you see, do you see this uh, issue particularly of, of Hispanic disunity? And the racial complexity of Hispanics, do you see that as, as a long-standing historical issue? I think it is. I think in the, in the case of the United States, uh, um, uh, it is visible in that many Hispanics um, see themselves as, as white or aspire to be white. Yes, yes. Um, aspire to be white, whether they are received as white is something else, but they aspire to be white. Um, many of them are uh, mixed, the racially mixed, mongrel, uh, and some of them, I mean, families, you see that variety and diversity. You see that in my family. I have 
brothers who are very brown and brothers who are I would be considered white. I'm considered white, I'd say, if I walk on the street and don't open my mouth <laughs> <laughs> or don't tell him my name. <laughs> um, so then my father was, uh, let's say, a mestizo, petite Mexican looking guy. My mother is very white with uh, blue eyes. So we have these these mix, uh, these uh, rainbow, uh, all sorts of hues and, and, and tones within our own family. Um, and, and so that is, I think, one reason. Um, and, and, and there's a lot of uh, racial tension and consciousness with, even within families. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I experienced that in my own family. Alina, my wife, has experienced that within her own family. Um, these kind of hierarchies within within close households, um, the, the good son, the good daughter, the mm -hmm. not good son, mm -hmm. the not so very good son. And these so are racially daughter. defined yeah. within a family. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And so the lighter skin being favored over the darker skin? Yeah. yeah Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mothers, fathers who, or family. Remember, my father telling the anecdote of when he was born, uh, that, I mean, I guess he he. he hear any of these but uh, his mother would tell him when he was growing up said, when you grew up when you was you were born uh, our uh, um, family would come by and um, to congratulate me but then when they saw you they would say oh don't worry Clementina uh, you don't remember the president at the time this is the 30s uh, who was an Indian uh, Isidro Ayora became president so there there are there, there. There, there's, there's, there's a chance. There's a chance. <laughs> the black him, sheep can do well. <laughs> for him to succeed. <laughs> so that, that, that would be a typical experience, yeah, yes. Yeah. And, and so you've experienced this, and you, again, you're a historian of this. You've studied this more than anyone else. Why does this get recreated? Why has this not gone away? My students would be surprised. Well, maybe they wouldn't be surprised, but many of them would be surprised to say that after all this time, after all this emphasis on racial equality since the civil rights movement and in all of these societies that you know which have had these movements why does this get i, I think because yeah. the, the issues of of racial and social mobility in latin america are far more fluid than they are here in the united states um so it allows for the concealing of of these tensions uh, so for instance we have the first black the president of Mexico was Guerrero, who in the 1830s, he passed the new constitution of 1830 that yes. abolished slavery, that led to the war of the Alamo here, because, I mean, after all, Santana came to abolish slavery. That is the first battle of the Civil War. It's often forgotten. Um, and so you you have the first president of, of Mexico after the empire is black. Right, right. Uh, then you have a president of Mexico, uh, Benito Juarez, who is an Indian, yes. uh, from Oaxaca, uh, in, uh, in uh, Mixteca, from uh, central Mexico, who became president. Um, um, and you have lots of Mexican intellectuals who were Indian. And, and then uh, Porfirio, Porfirio Diaz, who was the kind of big dictatorship, uh, in Mexico in the late 19th century was himself an Indian too. Mm -hmm. So uh, you see these uh, for, you don't have these racial boundaries that are as sharp and, and, 
and divisive as they are in the United States. You don't have that within the, the Latino and Hispanic uh, uh, community. For instance, one of the things that it really struck me when I came to Texas and learned about something about the history of Texas is that in the Constitution of 1841, if you are a black who is manumitted, you have to leave the state right. by constitutional right. law, which is striking because by 1530s in, in, or 1540s all over Tierra Firme, Mex uh, excuse me, Panama, uh, Colombia, the coast of Cartagena, etc., uh, you have 80% uh, of the population settlers in those areas are free black communities. Mm. So the first settlers of the United States, what well, today's United States are blacks in Florida, uh, free f black communities. Uh, so the majority of the black population in, in, in Latin America for, by and large, even when there was a slave and they are kind of incorporating millions of slaves, literally, uh, to plantations, etc. cetera, the, the, the free black population always remain larger than the, the, the unslaved population Interesting. always. Interesting. Um, so, but uh, nevertheless, race was always there. So you have that tension between social mobility, families that were calidad, where honor is more important than actual color of the skin. Uh, you can be black and be considered white. Right. If you have enough income and you dress appropriately. Interesting. It's not, it's not uncommon. Uh, so status is not necessarily tied to to the color of the skin. It's it's, it's tied to to uh, social capital, not necessarily just cash. Which makes it harder to confront in certain ways, right? Yeah, it's more yeah. difficult to pinpoint yeah. to say, well, you know. Gotcha. Because yeah, it happens within families. Right. Obviously, wow, it's a very powerful point. Zachary, you had a question. Yeah. Um. How have uh, Hispanics, after immigrating to the United States, uh, balanced uh, wanting to stay true to to not only being Hispanic but their individual like uh, like whether they're from Cuba or from Colombia, their individual uh, ethnicities, and being American and and assimilation. Yeah, that's a good question. I I think I am an American. I mean, I lived the longest in the United States, 31 years already. Um, I, I love this country. Uh, my father first came to this country as a, as a young man, 18, was uh, recruited to the... I mean, uh, he came as a hospital orderly to work in New York, and he was recruited to the, to the army and sent to Korea, fought three years in... in, in well, not in... in field hospitals and became a hospital orderly in, during battle, survived Korea, went... Uh, and then he could not get into college here hmm. as a Hispanic because he looked Mexican. Wow. Um, and uh, so all his pals, one African-American and one white, got into college and became physicians, his best friends, in the United States. And he had to leave the United States to study uh, medicine and went to Mexico. Um, and then uh, he always had these, these relationships with the United States uh, of kind of love, admiration, uh, but also uh, longing. Um, and so I grew up with this odd relationship to the United States uh, and eventually came here for whatever reasons, uh, went to college, uh, well, went to uh, uh, graduate school and, um, and uh, without the language, without English. I came without a single word of English. Um, 
and had to learn it, uh, became fascinated by language, fascinated by the structure of, 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 of grammar, syntax, um, uh, alliteration, rhythms, cadence. I tried to master the language, actually. Mm -hmm. I spent years uh, working hard uh, on writing, on reading, on, on uh, speaking. Um, and slowly, and then I had my kids, and then they are <laughs> Americans, and they are, they, they, but at the same time in the household, we always kept uh, this, this sense of belonging to, to Ecuador, mm. uh, our language, our customs, and et cetera, et cetera, the, 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 our, the things we eat, um, our festivities, the things we celebrate, everything was kind of always looking back to us, all the old uh, families, I guess, who are immigrants. And um, so we kept that and always been there. And uh, um, and all, even my kids remain with that uh, strong identity. So my daughter would uh, call herself uh, uh, Quiteña. She's never lived actually in Ecuador. She's spent months there, but she's never lived there. And yet she sees herself very much as part of Ecuador. Ecuadorian. Interesting. Interesting. Um, yeah. So part of the point here is, uh, unlike the categories that we deploy in our uh, demography and in our social science, in fact, most people live uh, among many categories. And our identities are not captured by being American or Ecuadorian, but actually some combination of all of those things. And right. for Hispanics, this is particularly true because most Hispanics... Right. Or many at least share the kind of background you're describing of multi countries, right. multi maybe even multiple religions. Right. As but such. I cannot, I can, and this is the the thing. I cannot be an American. Um, I, I I am reminded constantly that I am not, that I do not belong. Um, in many different many different ways, uh, subtle or not so subtle. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so it, it's not me who doesn't want to be fully integrated. It's just the system. That keeps me reminding, keeps reminding me that I'm not really, I'm not really in the club. Um, so, which is actually the reason why we're here. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And so, it, 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 as uh, we've been discussing uh, in many contexts, uh, these challenges within universities and within cities and within many of our institutions, institutions that claim to be progressive. Uh, you've made this point many times, and, and maybe you can elaborate for us on, on you know, what are the sources of exclusion that, that you feel in this context? <coughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, as I told many people already, I was, I was turning into a Latino here in Texas. I wasn't a Latino. <laughs> I swear, I wasn't into Latino politics. <laughs> I was the farthest away from, from I mean, I, th I thought it was silly, to be honest, but I was turning into a Latino here. Uh, why? Uh, well, that is a good question. Um, I think it has to do with the, 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 the slow realization that that who I was, my name, my uh, accent, I have an accent, my background made me uh, different. Um, um, and I was constantly reminded about it. So I began to explore this issue of Hispanics in universities uh, and began to find striking patterns. Like, for instance, uh, the university has about 2,000 uh, tenure and tenure track faculty. Um, there are 120 who are Hispanics. Now, Hispanics are defined here in kind of funny ways because uh, at least 10 of those 120 are Italians and Spaniards. Oh, that's it. Yes. <laughs> who happen to have the highest salaries of all Hispanics. Huh. 
Um, then there is a cap in the salaries of all those 110 Hispanics, the leftover, uh, that cannot be crossed. There's a threshold in the salary of all these 110 individuals who cannot be crossed, regardless of merit, regardless of publication, regardless of anything. It's, it's stuck there. Um, and there are substantive differences, gaps in, in, in salaries across the board. Associate professors, uh, uh, assistant professors, an average of about $21,000 with uh, uh, whites and even blacks, constant throughout. Uh, so it's not specific to any location. Mm-hmm. Now, there, the, the other thing that is striking in this university is also the distribution of these uh, 120 or 110 individuals um, that reinforces the category of the Latino or Hispanic, which is they belong in ghettos. Uh, so it's not an even distribution because, I mean, there is only two Hispanics in law out of 250 faculty, of which one is Argentinian, uh, white Argentinian so you, with a European name. Um, and then there is one in LBJ mm-hmm. out of I don't know how many faculty. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is none in about 50% of the departments and institutes and centers of campus. None. Even large departments? None. So if you take uh, 80%, 85% of centers, departments, and units in this campus have between zero and one Hispanic. Mm. So the majority of Hispanics, called Hispanics by legal terms, are clustered in, in, in certain areas. So, of course, Spanish and Portuguese, which so wherever I go, when I open my mouth and I say, I, I, I work at UT, the first, the first question is, oh, so you teach Spanish? <laughs> no, I do Chinese, Chinese medieval physics. Right, right. <laughs> Why not? Uh, why not? Uh, <coughs> and that is the problem, that most of our kids on campus see this as, as the default position. Mm. They see their role models as teaching Spanish or teaching anthropology or teaching ethnic studies, Mexican studies. They don't see them in roles of quantum physics or, you know, Chinese medieval physics or whatever. Right, right. Um, I mean, whatever. No, there are certain role models that they're re- that these kids um, get used to. Um, so there's that. So. The, the clustering of faculty in certain areas. Um, then there is the issue of, well, I already said numbers, but um, with the students, you see these striking numbers. Uh, we have about 40% of the population of Texas is considered Hispanic or Latino, Latinx. Um, yet, when it comes to the high school population, it's 48%. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. it's almost almost the majority of the population right. in high schools. Yet, this, ca- this university is the only non-Hispanic service institution in the state. So we don't have the threshold of 25% students to be a Hispanic service institution. We only have 23% admission uh, rate. And the more you dig into it, the more striking it becomes. Why? We have two systems of admissions. One is called the holistic admission, and the other is the 10% r- uh, rule. 10% rule admits 28 to 29% Hispanic, automatically. 
So when if we were to use the 10% rule, we will have 20, 28 to 29% population Hispanic. And just to explain to our listeners that that 10% rule means if you're, if you're in the top 10% or so of your class, you automatically get in, get in. to in UT. In, in Texas, Texas, right. Yes, all so, over. So these are, these are Hispanic students who are in the top 10% of their class. They get in. in. No one has any say over that. Yes, 10% admission uh, rule would guarantee some diversity. And so about one in three under that are Hispanic. You said 29%. 28, 29, yes. So a little less than one in three are Hispanic who get admitted that way. Well, one in four, a little closer to one in four. One in four. But but it's fine. Cross the threshold of Hispanic serving institutions. But it doesn't. Why? Because we have holistic admissions. Holistic admissions is being presented by the institution hmm, as a way of encouraging diversity. Right? Yet, or holistic admissions actually is a great affirmative action plan for whites because it completely s- switches from 28% to 23, 22%. Mm. So the great majority of people who are admitted through holistic admission system is uh, are whites. Uh, and yet the administration as far in court, in, 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 in the Supreme Court, uh, twice over the right to have holistic admissions under, under the guise that, that holistic admissions actually mm-hmm. encourage diversity. It does the opposite. At least for Hispanics. At least for Hispanics, yes. Um, I think it's, it's also the case for, for blacks. Actually. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> so this is something that, that, that requires some reflection mm-hmm. and, and dialogue and, 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 um, and uh, reflection in the wider university community because most of our colleagues just assume that the uh, that we are doing well through holistic admissions. Right. We're not. Right. Right. So, Jorge, if I might ask mm. you, um, th- in a sense, these are facts that most of us, myself included, didn't know in in the same degree of detail. But but they're 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 pretty undeniable. You can walk around this campus and you can see what looks like a dim- different demographic from the demographic of Texas as a whole. That's, that's obvious. That's undeniable. Um, why do you think this is? Well, I've been reflecting on this. Why, why, why the numbers? Why the salaries? Why are you made to feel like an outsider, as you said? Yes. Well, another striking statistics. Um, uh, we have studied the UT budget in detail, fine print, and found that there are 516 endowed chairs and professorships all over campus. Um, uh, we know that, for instance, in the College of Liberal Arts, uh, of about 118 endowed positions, uh, 38 are endowed chairs, you are one of them, well, you're not in in college, so you you endowment belongs to LBJ. I think my chair is in the LBJ school. Okay, yes. well, and so you're Strauss not one Center. of the 38. But yeah. in any event, um, I am one of um, six endowed professorships in college out of uh, 89. One one of six Hispanics. Hispanics, yes, and there is only one endowed chair that belongs to. A, an administrative position. It's not mm. really a merit of scholarship. Mm. So there are no mm. endowed chairs, mm. uh, period. So that would say makes me feel uh, as an outsider, um, literally, because I have, the, I, I would say, I have the vita and the record to have an endowed chair. I have I've done everything uh, that uh, 
would warrant that reward, but uh, it's never happened. And it, it hasn't happened in the university at large with, uh, with uh, Hispanics, period. Not in COLA, not in the College of Little Arts. Not, not one of them is good enough to have an endowed chair. Mm. Um, that is a good example, but there are many other examples. I mean, uh, we have discussed this in, in our department. One, one, one case is that I've never been elected to the executive committee of my department. Again, it might be, at the beginning I thought it was because I am not uh, sympathetic enough. I mean, that is fine. But then if you, <laughs> <laughs> if you, begin, if you begin to see these patterns, wider patterns, it, hap- it so happens that it's, it's, it's widespread. It's not only me, but it's widespread. So most Hispanics on campus are outside uh, uh, networks of authority and, 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 and hierarchies of authority. Uh, there is only two deans in the entire university who are Hispanics, and these are deans of very poor colleges, mm-hmm. education and social work, uh, with very little clout in general. Um, then there is one example. I just want to put you on one example, uh, which is striking because it's the case of LILAS. LILAS is the Latin American uh, Studies Center, of one of the greatest on earth, literally. Yeah. yeah. Uh, dating back to, uh, this is a surprise to me, I didn't know, I thought it was a, a, the product of the Cold War. It, it is not. Right. Precedes it. Not. it. Right. Precedes. Yeah. Uh, founded in, in 1943 or something. I think so, yeah. And it has, so it has a history of about 80 years or more, 80, 79 years or so. There, there, it has had 13 directors, none of them Latinos or Hispanic. Hmm. We're talking about an institution. Not a single one. Not a single one. Not a single one. So I come back to the question because, again, you're, you're, one could potentially quibble with parts of your data, but your overall point, I think, is a very powerful and undeniable one, that there seems to be a structural inequity in place. And, and other groups could point this out, too. African-Americans could point this out. Various other groups could, could point to this. It wouldn't look exactly the same. Why? Why? Well, this is the thing. The, the situation of, of African Americans is not as bad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the Hispanic case, why? why? Well, that is the, my my point is that uh, it, it is easier to see inequities for African Americans than to see inequities for uh, Hispanics. Mm-hmm. That is my my entire point. Mm-hmm. Um, you are asking me why. Um, well, I think it, the the nature of uh, race in this country that is built on polarities of white and black is made these other groups, but particularly Hispanics, that are kind of in between there, invisible. Um, they just are invisible to the issue of, of marginalization and inequities. They just, they, 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 they are a minority, they are some kind of uh, excluded population, but they are not seen. It's difficult to see them. Um, um, I would say that would be the uh, the reason I might I, I really I really don't know I'm struggling I'm I'm, I'm yeah. trying to understand and grapple and, why. and I think if um, and and this question now you know takes us to to where we have to close but it's also opening for our next conversation in a way it seems to me we have to understand the causes if we're going to find a solution. Right, because I don't think what you're saying, Jorge, is that on a in a day to day basis, 
you're seeing um, intentional efforts to exclude, but you're pointing to something structural. So, so where do you think, and this will be our, our ending for this conversation, but in a sense it's a beginning, where do you think taking your historical analysis we should go? What should we be starting to do to correct well, yeah. this? I, I think the problem, uh, most of the problems, merit, uh, uh, professorships, uh, salary gaps, etc., lack of access to uh, uh, structures of power in administration, governance, etc., they all <coughs> uh, have go back to the issue of social capital. Mm-hmm. Social capital explains many things, yes. in my opinion. Um, explains who gets to elect whom, who gets appointed to what, who is visible, who is not. Um, who has um, uh, is seen as trustworthy? Who is seen as uh, honorable? Who is seen as uh, um, uh, respectable? And uh, social capital, just for our listeners to explain. You, you, you mean networks, prestige, legitimacy, status—all of these things that, in, in a sense, are invisible until you don't have them. A- a- exactly. Yes. So there are these things that is social. So who votes for you? Mm-hmm. Who sees? Who remembers you when they are voting? Oh, that guy. Oh, he's good. Oh, let's vote for him. Uh, that um, works in such a way that oh, who will get that? Uh, who will nominate for this teaching position? Oh, oh, that guy. Um, uh, who will who will we appoint to this position in the chair? Oh, that guy. So the, the, those who are not visible uh, in these processes get excluded. Now, the issue of social capital can be easily solved. Okay. How? For instance, uh, in our department, we created uh, something that I think is very good. Uh, for instance, for teaching prices mm-hmm. uh, that avoids, avoids the issue of social, of social capital when it comes, for instance, to nominations. Sell nomination. Mm-hmm. And we have a committee that decides on, right. on the merit whether that this really is a good teacher or not. You don't have to wait for someone to nominate you. You can nominate yourself. Right. So. I think that's good. Uh, the other thing that um, <coughs> that will solve the issue of of social capital will be rotation, mm-hmm. rotation in positions of um, the, uh, authority and governance. Mm-hmm. Um, people get to rotate. Uh, just automatically, we avoid the issue of um, of um, uh, appointments, patronage, and also elections. One thing that I discover to my surprise, is that elections lead to segregation. Mm -hmm. I did a study of 50 years of membership of the um, faculty council. Mm -hmm. The The university's faculty council. The university faculty council. To my surprise, I found, this is striking, that in 50 years of the archives of the faculty council, only two Hispanics have occupied any position of authority. The last individual who occupied a position of authority did it in 2011. And then there is another the chair of a Senate council uh, in 1991, I think. Uh, I'm trying to remember my, my, the, uh, the data. So it's two. Two out of hundreds of positions of authority in, in the faculty council. So people do not elect Hispanics, period. They, they are not good enough for whatever reason. Um, so uh, the, the, the vote of the majority creates segregation since there are so few Hispanics. So we, 120, do not have the numbers to vote any of us in, in anywhere. 
So we are always excluded. We remain excluded because we are very few and because we are invisible. Um, so I think elections are a problem. So we need to address the issue of elections mm -hmm. uh, as to how to get to all these positions of authority. Um, and I think rotation is a, it's a, it's a good way of addressing that in, in uh, departments or yeah, other, other levels. Uh, so th those are, for instance, two concrete examples. Those are excellent solutions. examples. And they actually give us a pathway forward. They show also how historical consciousness can actually improve policy. Um, the only thing I would add uh, would be that I think one element of these, this is implied in what you said, is providing the resources and the ability for those in groups that are excluded to actually build social capital. One of the things, and again, this is implied in much of what you said, Jorge, so, and you said it so well, is uh, when we study groups that have moved from being excluded to being less excluded, I don't know if groups that are excluded ever become unexcluded, but uh, what we find is that they, they find ways to build social capital often with the help from those who are more on the in-group, but often on, often in their own terms building social capital. And one of the things you've been doing very well, I think, is working with other Hispanics on campus to build social capital. Social capital is not something that is God-given. Mm -hmm. Social capital is created, right? And those in power have an obligation to help in its creation, and those who don't have social capital have an obligation, as you're showing, to also work toward their own self-creation of social exactly. capital. I think it has to do a lot with political... Uh, organization. Uh, precisely. Precisely. And and I think actually the history of democracy shows that, right? A. Philip, a. Philip Randolph famously said, right, that if you want to get something done in a democracy, organize. Yes. Organize. That, that, that I discovered. <laughs> <laughs> and and you've, you've, you've provided not only a historical uh, analysis of that, but also an example of that. Zachary, let's, let's close with you. Uh, how do you think about these issues? You're, you're, you're growing up uh, in Texas, uh, surrounded by these issues in your, in your school, in, in your activities. How do you think about these issues? Well, I think, it's, I think there's still a, a big problem because a lot of, uh, of people with less diverse, wealthier backgrounds don't really interact with those um, lower income backgrounds, both Hispanic and African-American. And I think that there's a real problem uh, about a lack of interaction. But at the same time, I think there's a lot of hope because uh, there, so much of our student population of our young people are come from so many different diverse backgrounds that there's a real chance for, for us to learn about each other. And I think that's something that's really important because we see each other every day and we get to know each other as we go through school. And so the interactions can help overcome some of these historical uh, inheritances, perhaps, right? Well, this has been a fantastic conversation. Uh, Jorge, you, you have educated us about the history going way back. You've also given us insights into your own personal experience, and thank you for sharing that uh, with us. And you've given us some important ideas, at least conceptually, for thinking about how to move forward. At the very least, I think you provided us with a clear sense of the problem and how history helps to articulate and, and open our eyes to, in a sense, that what's staring us in the face that we often don't like to talk about. So thank you, Jorge, for, no, thank for joining you. us. It was a pleasure, and it was great meeting you. You are a great poet. Thank you. <laughs> and Zachary, thank you for your insights and for your poem. Thank you for joining us for this episode of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.